ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. The city of Bloomington continues its environmental cleanup of its decommissioned Griffey Lake water treatment plant. In its meeting Monday night, the Bloomington Utilities Service Board approved extending its contract with VET Environmental Engineering for the cleanup. Assistant Director of Engineering Brad Schrader discussed the contract with the board. Some of this is an outcome of what we've kind of moved into cleanup phase on the grounds around the plant. So up until now, it's been mostly in the plant and emergency response. And this has kind of taken it outside and engaged with item and doing cleanup on that. So there's a tank removal and, and quite a few other things on that. The city decommissioned the Griffey Lake water treatment plant in 1990s. The utilities department completed one mercury cleanup in 2017. Schrader said this most recent cleanup effort began with asbestos removal, then new mercury contamination was discovered last year. Then there's that with the mercury, there were flow meters and they weren't removed, and so the mercury, yeah, was broken and then spread all over by people moving through the building constantly and kind of distributed mercury everywhere. And that's part of what's in this and in and, and, and the following scope, which will come, is we found mercury even in other parts of the building where they finally were able to dewater it and get in there, and there's, in fact, mercury in those other parts of the building, too. So there's mercury's proliferate. Schrader referred to the mercury as prolific and said cleanup crews discover more mercury each time they enter the plant. He said even small amounts can be hazardous. It's in very small amounts, and when it gets into the concrete, it actually emits a, a detectable gas, which is hazardous. And that's why you can't go in without breathing protection, because it's everywhere and it's in the concrete and even that little bit will emit a little bit of gas so you have its exposure when you're inside. Schrader said moving the toxic waste off the plant property has been a difficult and expensive endeavor because the asbestos and mercury are often mixed. He said the $230,000 VET contract extension will include waste hauling. Utilities Director Vic Kelson said he expects the cleanup will be completed in the next three months. Schrader added that the property will need long-term monitoring and its potential future uses still need to be worked out. The city would like to sell the plant eventually, but Kelson said he hasn't yet received a firm commitment from an interested party. Last week, scientists released initial forecasts for the upcoming hurricane season. The Colorado State University Tropical Meteorology Project announced that hurricane season storms are expected to be slightly milder than average, offering some hope for residents of the Caribbean, Gulf Coast, and eastern seaboard. The 2019 hurricane season runs from the beginning of June to the end of November. For the season, the team predicts 13 named storms, 
five of which will become hurricanes, and two of which will be Category 3 to 5 storms with wind speeds of 111 miles per hour or greater. Last year, the team's predictions were relatively accurate. They predicted 14 named storms and seven hurricanes, one less than final tally in each category U.S. Today reported. In 2019, lower ocean temperatures are one of the reasons for predicting a slightly calmer season. The tropical Atlantic is cooler than average, which both reduces the chances that hurricanes will intensify and signals a more stable, drier atmosphere that is less likely to form thunderheads. The second reason for predicting a less volatile hurricane season is that a weak El Nino has formed in the Pacific and El Nino conditions are expected to persist through the season. The westerly winds encouraged by El Nino disperse hurricanes as they form. A new study published in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Global Public Health reviews a decade of research to find health effects from fracking. The researchers found that health problems linked to fracking include preterm births, asthma, migraine headaches, nasal and sinus issues, and skin problems. The study reviewed several hundred scientific articles on the health impacts of fracking. Irina Gorsky, co-author of the study, said, quote, We have enough evidence at this point that these health impacts should be of serious concern to policymakers, unquote. Gorski also said that the health impacts of fracking with the most evidence are negative effects on pregnancy and birth outcomes. The paper found that women living close to fracking sites are at increased risk of having a baby with lower than average birth weight, having a high-risk pregnancy, and having a baby with a low infant health index. The total mass of insects worldwide is falling by 2% a year according to the best data available, suggesting many species could vanish within a century. The analysis, published in the journal Biological Conservation, says intensive agriculture is the main driver of the declines, particularly the heavy, indiscriminate use of pesticides. Urbanization and climate change are also significant factors. The rate of insect species extinction is eight times faster than that of mammals, birds, and reptiles. More than 40% of insect species are in precipitous decline and a third are endangered. Insects are by far the most varied and abundant animals on Earth. According to research, they are also essential for ecosystem function, serving as food for other creatures, pollinators, and recyclers of nutrients. And now, for some good news. In a special election, 61% of voters in Toledo, Ohio, approved a measure giving Lake Erie the same legal rights as those of a human being. Lake Erie's new Bill of Rights permits residents to take legal action against entities that violate the lake's rights to, quote, flourish and naturally evolve, unquote. The Bill of Rights grants residents legal standing in court to sue corporate polluters on behalf of Lake Erie and to seek damages that would be used to eliminate pollution in the lake. 
The measure was modeled on rights to nature laws which have been passed in Lafayette, Colorado, the Ponca Nation of Oklahoma, and the Chippewa Nation of Minnesota, and the countries of India and Nepal. The vote came after Toledoans for Safe Water led a multi-year campaign to persuade voters that their city's charter must be changed so that pollution in the lake could be reduced. Lake Erie provides drinking water to 12 million Americans and Canadians. New York is about to become the second state, after California, to ban single-use plastic bags. The initiative could become part of the state's budget bill, which legislators expect to pass soon. Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo introduced the proposal last year, but the previous state Senate wouldn't pass it. The measure would ban the use of single-use plastic bags at most stores, but would permit some businesses to continue using them. Restaurants could use plastic bags for takeout, and newspapers could still be delivered in them. If they wished, individual counties could decide to charge five cents per bag for paper bags in an attempt to motivate consumers to use their own reusable totes. Besides California, which passed similar legislation in 2016, all Hawaii's counties have initiated bag bans. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. In this week's feature, WFHB's Jan Walker interviews Sandy Belth, assistant naturalist from Monroe County Parks and Recreation about monarch butterflies. My name is Jan Walker and I'm talking with Sandy Belth today. Sandy is a naturalist at Monroe County Parks and Recreation and she's also been studying butterflies for over 20 years. Sandy, why is uh, the milkweed plant so important to the monarch butterfly? All butterflies have host plants that they lay their eggs on. So first off, butterflies will smell with their antennae, and they see with their compound eyes, and they taste with little chemoreceptors on their forelegs. When a female monarch is looking for a milkweed plant on which to lay her eggs, first she will look for the overall shape of the plant, and then she will taste it with her feet. And if everything is right to her, she will bend her abdomen and lay a single egg on the undersides of the leaf. Now, usually in nature, this is only on the top four leaves that they will lay their eggs, and this is because these leaves are very succulent. They're very soft and pliant. The older leaves are harder, and then when the caterpillar hatches from the egg, their little teeny tiny mouth parts can't chew on the leaf. When they first come out of the eggshell, they actually eat part of their eggshell that has a lot of protein and is very integral to their development of their exoskeleton, their skin. They will actually start eating the little hairs on the underside of the milkweed leaf because of their tiny, tiny mouth parts. And then as they shed their skin for the first time, and this is called an instar between each shedding of the skin, they will 
be able to start eating the milkweed leaf proper. Monarch butterflies will go through four life stages, the egg stage, the larval stage, the pupa or chrysalis, butterflies make a chrysalis, moths make a cocoon, and the adult insect. The caterpillars are eating machines, and they will go through several sheds of the skin at least four times. And in between each shed of the skin is called the instar. So by the fifth instar, the beginnings of the wings and the chrysalis, the beginning of the antenna, are already formed underneath that last skin. The shedding of the skin is because of hormones in the small brain of the insect. And juvenile hormone keeps a caterpillar a caterpillar, but once juvenile hormone has started to decline, then the ecdysone, another enzyme that is responsible for shedding, kicks in. So after the ecdysone has kicked in, the caterpillar will look for a place in which to pupate. And usually this is going to be in a sneaky hidden place because they don't want to emerge from a chrysalis in plain view of potential predators. So this is how come it's hard to find monarch chrysalises or any butterfly chrysalis for that matter. They will use their mouth parts. They have a little silk gland, and they'll spit a little white silken button. And then they will use their anal claspers and hang upside down in a J-shape for about 18 hours. At that point, they will shed their final skin, revealing the chrysalis underneath. Now, all insects breathe through little holes in their abdominal sections called spiracles. And once the caterpillar has shed that final skin, revealing the chrysalis, those little spiracles are still present so that they can be gas exchanged for the chrysalis. The caterpillar will remain in the chrysalis stage for 10 to 14 days, in which point the miracle of (laughs) metamorphosis really takes place because there's not a caterpillar inside anymore and there's not a butterfly yet. Instead, everything is dissolved into life's juices and then it was rearranged around key imagical cells to create the butterfly inside. When this is about ready to end, the chrysalis will appear transparent and you can see the butterfly within. Then they will take in air through those spiracles, and pushing with their legs, there is a predetermined little slit in the side of a chrysalis that will open up, and the butterfly will emerge. Its wings are all crimpled and damp, and the butterfly will then pump its abdomen, pump the hemolymph, the insect blood, through all of the uh, veins and body parts, expanding those wings. And this can take place over the course of a couple of hours. Caterpillars also are known to get off of their host plant and creep to another nearby plant to form their chrysalis. So it's not necessarily going to be found on a milkweed plant. Once they emerge from their chrysalis, you'll be able to determine whether it's a male or female. The males have black spots that are on that surface of their wing, and these are a pheromone that is released that attracts the females. At that point, The males will find a female, they'll mate, and then the female needs to find a place to lay her eggs. And she will, again, look with her compound eyes, look for that overall leaf shape, and then touch down and taste it with her forelegs. The problem is finding the milkweed. More and more 
habitats are changing and declining for monarch butterflies, and there's been less and less of the common milkweed and butterfly weed and other milkweeds that are in our state. And so monarch butterflies have to fly further between milkweed plants to lay their eggs, expending valuable energy. So when we have a field that has more milkweed stems per acre, it's easier for the female to find those plants and lay her eggs without expending all that energy. What can each of us do to help the monarch? Plant more milkweed. (laughs) Even if it's just a butterfly weed in a plant pot you can set on your front porch, the likelihood of a monarch coming by in the fall migration is pretty good. We don't want to always think of just milkweed. This is the larval host plant for the butterfly. We also need to be mindful of planting a lot of pollinator-friendly plants, not just for the monarchs, but for all pollinators as well. The monarch butterflies need to have the native ironweeds, the goldenrods, tixied sunflowers, and the like that are blooming in the fall here. Google Monarch Watch, and they have a milkweed seed marketplace. They will be able to supply people with regional appropriate milkweed seeds or milkweed plugs, depending on if it's just for your backyard or if it's for a larger project. Monarch populations have been declining for the past 20 years. A lot of this has to do with loss of habitat and pesticides that are put on large agricultural areas. And so there's been a lot of work done with trying to make sure that agricultural communities only spray at the appropriate times and that they reduce the amount of drifting where the spray gets on the milkweed plants. The western population of monarchs has declined precipitously. It's at 84%, and they are struggling to find out what is happening. The monarch butterfly out there is on life support right now. It's very bad. But here in the eastern U.S., surprisingly and very happily, their numbers at the overwintering colonies actually increased this year to the the highest that it's been in 12 years. We went from 2.48 hectares last year to 6.05 hectares this year. Uh, That's a 144% increase over the last year. Uh, So that is just a fantastic amount of monarchs. But we have to be cautious when we have a, a big uptick like this because it could be the precursor of something else bad happening. Anytime when the monarchs are migrating, they can be swept out to sea or get in hailstorms, thunderstorms. There could be a hurricane that decimates them. In the overwintering colonies, sometimes there is a late-season frost that really hurts the monarch populations. And about 12, 15 years ago, this happened. And some of the iconic monarch researchers said that they were walking knee-deep through dead monarchs, and that was a very terrible thing. So weather patterns are a really a really big problem for monarchs as well as the loss of habitat. So we just have to cross our fingers that the monarch population, since it was so great this winter in the overwintering population, that many of them make them back up here and are able to increase the population even more. But in the meantime, I think if everybody just plants milkweed and and pollinator nectar sources, that will be very good. Sandy, thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me, Jan.
Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now, it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. That's the sound of the spring peeper, Pseudochrys crucifier. It's a small chorus frog, widespread throughout the eastern United States and Canada. Spring peepers are tan or brown with a dark cross that roughly forms an X on their dorsa, thus the Latin name crucifier meaning crossbearer. Though sometimes the marking may be indistinct. They have a body length less than one and a half inches the species has large toe pads for climbing, although it is more at home amid the loose debris on the forest floor. Spring peepers live primarily in forests and regenerating woodlands near ephemeral or semi-permanent wetlands. This amphibious species requires marshes, ponds, or swamp regions to support the aquatic environment the eggs and tadpoles need. Spring peepers are nocturnal carnivores emerging at night to feed primarily on small invertebrates such as beetles, ants, flies, and spiders. They do not climb high into the trees but hunt in low vegetation. Spring peepers living in deep damp forests are active hunters both day and night whereas those found in woodland edges restrict most hunting and other activity to night. The spring peeper has no special conservation status in most areas. They are common and widespread frogs in the eastern regions. However, their habitats are quickly changing due to loss of wetlands. In some areas, their populations have decreased significantly. The spring peeper now announcing its presence. You've been listening to In Nature.
And now, here are events from this week's calendar. There will be a Bluebird Nest Box Building Workshop on Saturday, April 20th at Brown County State Park in the Nature Center. It will start at 2 p.m. Pre-register by emailing p-h-a-u-l-t-e-r at dnr.in.gov. That's phalter at dnr.in.gov. Or call 812-988-5240. Happy Earth Week, everyone. And you have a chance to celebrate Earth Week with a lake cleanup at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. It will be on Saturday, April the 20th, from 10 a.m. to noon. Spend time removing debris from the boat launch area and collecting litter from the lake's hidden coves. Trash bags, watercraft, and gloves will be provided. Sign up at bloomington.in.gov slash parks vol. This Earth Week, you can lend a hand doing spring cleaning on Clear Creek Trail. That's Clear Creek Trail. The trail will host a cleanup day on Sunday, April 21st, from 2 to 4 p.m. Trash bags and gloves will be provided. Please meet at the Tap Road parking lot. Sign up at bloomington.in.gov slash parks vol. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar-powered generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. Today's feature was produced and edited by Jan Walker. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. And Linda Green contributed our good news stories. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show and helped edit this week's feature. The script was edited by Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman-Brower, Sarah Vaughn, and Jan Walker. Jan Walker is our producer, and our executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. 
Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.